Well, we're back in Jonah, aren't we? As you're turning in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3, we're going to read the entire chapter, all 10 verses of it here in just a minute. Um, let, let me ask you a couple quick questions here, and you can feel free to just answer with a simple yes or no. Um, are you, uh, at present, in a church building? Okay, see how easy this is? Uh, are you, at present, right now, in the United States of America on Independence Day? Okay, still easy. Third question, are you truly converted? Are you truly converted? How do, you, how do you know the answers to these questions? Well, the first two are stupid questions because if you just open your eyes, uh, you'll see that you're in a church building. Uh, hopefully you had your eyes open when you drove here. Uh, and maybe for that second question, is it July 4th, you'd have to check a, a map to see if you were in the U.S. or a calendar to see what the date was. But these things are knowable. They're measurable. Do you realize that conversion is knowable and measurable? And my prayer this morning is that God would give us grace to, to check the map and have our eyes open spiritually uh, that we might know what it is to have turned from sin and turned by faith in God and His Christ. You know, I, I mention this because there uh, is always uh, before us when we're in the Old Testament, particularly dealing uh, with God's people, Israel. Remember, Jonah was a prophet to Israel. Um, that there would be those among us who, who believe they are converted uh, simply because they're churchgoers. But how many of you know churches are full of people who are not converted? And, and there is always the, the, the danger that there would even be those among us who would, who would think that, well, I, I live in America, I live in this one nation under God, uh, and therefore by virtue of that, of course I'm a Christian. How many of you know that, that's exactly what was happening in ancient Israel? Everybody going through all the motions... And everybody thinking they were right with God because they belonged to that people known as Israel and yet remained unconverted. That's why God kept sending his prophets again and again and again calling his people to repent. Well, as we turn to Jonah this morning, we're going to see the greatest miracle that is contained in this narrative of Jonah, greater than the, the wind that God prepared, the, the storm at sea that he prepared, greater than the fish even that God prepared to swallow Jonah and, and, and keep him, uh, if you will, for three days and three nights. We're going to see the miracle of conversion among the people of Nineveh. Jonah 3 shows us that God works mightily and he works miraculously through his word to bring about conversion. It's always a work of God. It's not a work of man. And we bring the gospel uh, to unbelieving souls as a church, uh, not in the strength of our own words, uh, not, not, in the, not in the strength of our, our uh, colorful and, and clever methods, um, but in assurance that conversion is something that God can do and is something that only God can do. 
The conversion of souls is a miraculous work of God. And it really has to be in light of what the scripture tells us about the human heart apart from God's grace. You all know uh, Jeremiah 17, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What is God saying through his prophet Jeremiah? Well, he's not saying that every person is as bad as he or she could be. Unconverted people still pay it forward in the the, the drive-through line sometimes, don't they? Unconverted help little old ladies across the street. Unconverted people do good things, quote-unquote, by humanistic standards. What Jeremiah does mean, though, is that there simply is no measuring the depth of the capacity for evil that resides in the human heart including your heart and my heart, were it not for the grace of God. The Puritan John Owen said this, the seed of every sin lies latent in the heart of every man. And we could well appropriate for ourselves Robert Murray McShane's um, paraphrase of Owen. He says, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. So the conversion of souls must be a work of God, a miraculous work that is done through the efficacy of his word by the spirit. And because it's a work of God, listen, conversion must be measured and known God's way. We don't decide what it is to be converted. God does. God does. And so Jonah 3 is going to show us, not from a theological perspective, but from a human perspective, an, ins- an experiential perspective, what true conversion looks like. Are you converted? How do you know? Well, let's, let's just see what it looks like in ancient Nineveh. Verse 1 of Jonah 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is a miracle. 
the conversion of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of souls. But again, the conversion of one soul is a miraculous work of God. What does it look like? Well, Nineveh is a great city. Remember, it's great in circumference. It's great in population. Surely it's great in wickedness, uh, as we've seen. Uh, But remember that word great and its double meaning. Uh, Nineveh is great in its significance to God. it's It's a great city because it's an important city in that God cares about the people of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't, but God does. In Jonah's eyes, the people of Nineveh are insignificant. They're expendable. They're detestable. That's why he ran from his commission in the first place. And I urge you to just sort of check your own spirit this morning. Are there not people that to you are just sort of in the background in this world? Not that significant? How many of you are glad God is not like that? The people of Nineveh are supremely significant in God's eyes. Why? Because he intends to convert them. He intends to pour out mercy upon the wicked people of Nineveh, and he'll not be stopped by a prejudiced prophet with mixed motives. That's what Jonah is. The living God has chosen to pour out his saving mercy on what by human measure is the most undeserving group of people. But you know what? All throughout the Old Testament, we see God pouring out his saving mercy on other Gentiles. Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, Even the sailors who so reluctantly tossed Jonah into the sea. You see, God is not stingy with his saving mercy. Nor does he play favorites. The way people like us sometimes play favorites. Those people matter. Those people don't matter. You realize Israelites were not the only people saved in the Old Testament, right? In fact, God continually sent his prophets to his people. Why? Uh, Because so many of them were not converted. They were just banking on the fact that they belonged to the nation Israel. And they were heartlessly going through the religious motions of the ceremonial law. And yet far from God. And so what Jonah must grapple with is the fact that God is equally concerned with the pagan people of Nineveh as he is the prodigal people of Israel. Verse 3 tells us that Nineveh was a three-day journey in extent. It's a very large city. Possibly that means that it took three days to, to get across the city and its suburbs or, or walk around you know, the, the, the Nineveh metro area, if you will. Uh, but, it, but it's also possible that this is another statement about the city of Nineveh's importance. Nineveh was a major diplomatic center for the kingdom of Assyria. And it was the kind of city where there would be these formal protocols for visits from uh, emissaries from other nations. 
And a protocol would be something like on the first day, if you can imagine such a thing, somebody visiting a foreign country, and there's just kind of a ceremony. The next day, they actually go about their work. Then on the third day, there's another ceremony to say goodbye. I mean, we do that in our country all the time, don't we? At great expense sometimes. But that's just, that's just what you do um, in terms of relating to other nations. Remember, Jonah is a higher up, so to speak, uh, in the kingdom of Israel. Uh, he, he's running with a very influential crowd in light of his success as a prophet to Israel. And so it's very possible that the, that the image that we usually have in our head of Jonah kind of wandering into Nineveh all dazed and disheveled and, he, and he's all you know, bedheaded and blotchy from being in a whale, that sort of thing. It's very possible that's not the image we're meant to have. It took a, it took a long time for him to travel from northern Israel to Nineveh. And so he's cleaned up and he's straightened up by God's grace and, and, and he gets to work preaching God's gospel. And notice that the message that he is sent to deliver to the Ninevites is really direct. In fact, you and I read that and we think, that's kind of rude. I mean, what kind of guest is he in the city of Nineveh? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's not candy-coated. It's not a sales pitch. God didn't send Jonah to Nineveh to just sort of hope against hope that somehow somebody might get converted. That's not what's happening here. Jonah comes with a message from the living God. And it's accompanied by the power of the living God. And it bears fruit according to the design and purpose of the living God. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Do you realize, friends, that the gospel is not simply that God loves you no matter what you think of him, no matter how you live, and he's got a great plan for your life. That really is not the gospel, but many people think it is. The notion that a person is acceptable to God uh, no matter what they think or say to do with respect to God because God, after all, is love. That's actually a false gospel. That's a distortion of what is meant by the love of God for sinners. The true gospel is a call to conversion. It's a call to turn to God, to to turn away from sin. And it's actually enabled by God himself. Listen to Acts 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. See, the the gospel calls us to turn toward God, that's belief, and, and to turn from sin, that's repentance. Do you see how when I said, hey, are you converted? How would you know? These things are measurable and knowable. Check the map. Conversion always is accompanied by belief in God and repentance from sin. Why? Because it's a work of God. And in verse 4, in Hebrew, um, 
it teases to this very thing. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Circle the word overthrown in your Bible, just so you can remember this. Um, this is another one of those words that has a double meaning. And it's given very deliberately in Jonah's narrative. Um, the Hebrew word uh, translated overthrown, havak, uh, often means destroyed, j- just flat out wiped out. Uh, it means destruction, severe judgment. And, and clearly Jonah wanted the message to mean that to the people of Nineveh. Jonah wished hell for the people of Nineveh. We know that because when God converts them, he sulks about it. God, I knew you were going to do this. I told you this was what would happen. I mean, if you can imagine such a thing. But sometimes the same word means to change, to turn around. Listen to Psalm 66. God turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There will we rejoice in him. God changed the sea into dry land. At at the Red Sea and then at the Jordan River, as his people entered the promised land, water was overthrown, if you will, changed into dry land. God miraculously brought about a change for the benefit of his people and for his glory. What, what does the word overthrown mean here in Jonah 3, verse 4? Well, it's got a double meaning, doesn't it? Jonah wants it to mean destruction. Wipe them out. Just like Sodom. God intends conversion. God intends to bring about a change, a complete radical turnaround in Nineveh. Whose purposes will prevail, do you suppose? Will the people of Nineveh be destroyed? Or will the people of Nineveh be transformed through belief in God and repentance from their sin? What about you? Are are you converted? Do you realize the Bible knows nothing of a person forgiven by God yet remaining unchanged and in unrepentant sin? We came up with that gospel. That's not the gospel of the Bible. In Jonah, this double meaning then creates suspense in the narrative. Is is there still time for people like the Ninevites to have a change of heart? Yeah. Are, Are people as evil as wicked as are the Ninevites, are they, are they too far outside the reach of God's mercy? No, no. Even though they're not from Israel? Yeah. Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, now if, if the miracle of, of belief and, and repentance... <laughs> Uh, um, is what involves conversion. We need to know what belief and repentance really are. What does it mean that the people of Nineveh believed God? What, What does it mean that I believe God, that you believe God? Well, it means far more than a simple assent to some facts. 
The Hebrew word translated believe uh, comes from a root word that means amen. I found this fascinating. To believe is to come into amen with God, to to, to come into total agreement with God. This This is the miracle of conversion that you see happening in Nineveh. The Ninevites bowed under the word of God. This is what we truly deserve. But we... We really are a wicked people. Listen, when you hear in the gospel a call to a turn from sin, are, are you convinced that you deserve judgment from God? Are, are you convinced that you deserve a condemnation for sin? The, the, the trouble is that sometimes we tend, we're like Jonah. We compare ourselves to the Ninevites of our day. The Ninevites were polytheistic. They worshipped many false gods. Uh, They were a bloodthirsty bunch. Uh, It was the Ninevites who had perfected the art of of peeling the skin off of people while they were alive. Sorry, but that's 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 the kind of crowd it was. They treated their enemies with terrible cruelty. And remember, who were their enemies? Anybody who wasn't them. They're very unlikely converts. (laughs) But are we also very unlikely converts? In light of the scripture telling us that there's no depth to the depravity that resides in the heart of men and women born in Adam, are we really that different from the Ninevites? You know, I think we ought to be convicted a bit by Jonah 3 because the people of Nineveh were not as surprised by Jonah's message as some church people are today. What happened in Nineveh? Well, there is implanted within every human heart the knowledge of God. There is in every person in this room right now a conscience on which is stamped a knowledge of a holy and just God. And that knowledge is not enough to save us. Don't misunderstand me. That that common revelation or natural revelation, but it is enough to condemn us. Read Romans 1. Read Jonah 3. That's what's happening right here in ancient Nineveh. Does your conscience say to you that you have sinned against a holy God and deserve judgment? When our fantastic VBS teachers taught the kids here this past week that they needed to admit that they are sinners and repent, they needed to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they needed to confess Him as Savior and Lord, Uh, They did so knowing that by God's own design, each one of those little ones has a conscience uh, that realizes they have thought and said and done wrong things. This is a gift from God. When, When the youth preach at camp this week, 
And in the weeks that progress throughout the summer, they do so with the confidence that there is power in this message from the word of God. This is God's work. As Bub St. Peter, bless his heart, in his 90s, out in the sunshine in Bayview, handing out Bibles with the other Gideons, 300 plus Bibles yesterday, I think he told me, um, they do so with, with, with the confidence that there's power in the Word of God. That, that within man and within a woman, there is a conscience that says, you know what? I'm not right with God. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But when God does that work of, of awakening the conscience to see, you know what, I'm not square with God. What I'm being told is true. What happened in Nineveh happens still today. The people knew they were living wickedly. They knew they were living sinfully. And so that when they heard this warning of God's wrath and God singled them out for mercy, they believed the message. He intends to convert them and they will be converted. So verse five says, the people of Nineveh believed God. So that's a belief. What's repentance? What's repentance? Well, look at verse five again. They believed God proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. By the way, this, is, this doesn't count against my time. But I want us to notice as Americans on this Independence Day how God changes a nation. Do you, do you see how this turnaround in Nineveh doesn't begin from the top down? It doesn't begin, you know, get the right leaders, make sure you have the right laws, uh, make sure you impose all of those laws on everybody else, some kind of moral majority type thing. No, this turnaround in Nineveh takes place one heart at a time, one family at a time, one community at a time, surrendering to the authority of Almighty God. The, the hope for this country and any country is the gospel. Not the next election. And, and the havoc, the, the change in Nineveh is noticeable. It's not a secret thing. It's an open thing. Now, the people humble themselves before the living God of Jonah. That they turn from their evil ways. They turn from their violence. John Calvin in his, his institutes calls this duplex gratia or, or double grace. When, when God purposes to save a people, he grants belief and, and he grants repentance. In fact, the scripture encourages us that we would pray for the lost, that God would grant repentance and faith. So the Ninevites begin fasting and they, they put on these uncomfortable gunny sacks of all things. They're, 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 they're visibly showing that they have contrite hearts before God. And just try to imagine what that first day of preaching in Nineveh must have been like. The day's activities begin as normal. People carried on with their selfish, hedonistic lifestyles. 
the markets were opened and people cooked their food and, and kids are playing out in the streets and, and everybody's cleaning their, their, their spears and sharpening their knives and all of that sort of thing. Uh, idolatry and, it, it, and the sexual immorality that came along with all that continued. And then a guy from Israel shows up with a word from the living God. And by nightfall, the entire city is in sackcloth and ashes. Is this not a miracle? But you see, the conversion of one person in Nineveh was a miracle. So the prepared food is left uneaten. They're fasting now. Nobody's drunk tonight. Pagan worship ceremonies cease. The music stops. The spears and the knives are laid down. Jonah gets to keep his skin. That's repentance. That's repentance. There's been a turning from sin. And there's been a turning to God. Look look at verse 6. Then word came to the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in the ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with, with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. How strangely backward this seems to us. The king becomes like his people. Now pay attention, we're going in a direction, aren't we? The king leaves his throne, takes off his royal robe, and clothes himself as his people. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? That must be important. We'll, we'll come back to that. The king issues a decree calling the people to repent. And he says to them, what? Cry mightily to God. Don't, don't cry out to your false gods like those sailors did at first. Cry out to Elohim, the living God, the one true God, Jonah's God. Cry out to him. And the king calls on them to repent, to turn their living upside down. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And they do. That's repentance. It's a complete turnaround. It's not a bargain with God. I guess if I do this, God will do that. The king of Nineveh even seems to understand this. Look at verse 9. He says, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? That that is not the language of presumption. That, That is the language of contrition. Have your way with me, God. I'm yours. Throwing yourself at the mercy of God, yet not demanding to be owed anything from God. Listen, genuine repentance, the scripture says, involves real sorrow for sin. Paul says there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. 
in genuine repentance, there is, there is an abiding sorrow for sin. In other words, it's not, a, it's not a quick, cold, transactional thing. Sorry, God. No, the, the heart has been changed. This, this miracle of God has taken place so that you rightly see yourself and you see God for who he is. But in Nineveh, we see that genuine repentance also turns in sorrow from sin as it turns to hope in God for mercy. Don't leave that out. And you wonder, well, why, why focus on this so much? This is Old Testament stuff. We're New Testament people, right? We're grace people. Well, listen, grace people. Do you realize the Lord Jesus pointed to the people of Nineveh to, and said to the religious folks of his day this, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the, in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus points to what happened in Nineveh here in Jonah 3 and says, that's repentance and belief in God. The people of Nineveh believed and repented. Have you? Have you? Is there hope for you as you have in your heart a godly sorrow for sin? Let's look at verse 10. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, God intended to save the Ninevites, and he made it possible for them to believe and repent. And he withheld judgment. He gave mercy. What an amazing God we have. And what a reminder to us that he will not withhold mercy from anyone who believes in him and turns from sin. How can God do this? And is this is... This is the scandal of the gospel, isn't it? How can God forgive sinners like us, holy as he is, and promising to punish all sin, to condemn all sin? Well, just listen to a little bit more of Acts 3 before we close. It says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Wow. Since the beginning of sinful human history. God has been promising a redemption for people lost in sin. He's been promising a substitute for those who cannot pay for their own sin and certainly cannot endure the wrath of Almighty God. And we've already seen before in Jonah that Jonah himself typifies Christ, doesn't he? And in Christ, the one greater than Jonah has come. 
You see, like the people of Nineveh, we have a king who stepped down from his throne, don't we? We, we have a king who set aside his royal garments. We, we have a, a, a pure and righteous king who came to this earth and clothed himself in humanity. And he came to take the judgment from God that his people truly deserve. Jesus didn't wear sackcloth. He wore a cross. And as Daryl was singing earlier, Jonah sunk down, down, down into that water. Uh, Jesus, the eternal son of God, sank down and, and deeper down still from heaven to be immersed in the wrath of almighty God for your sin and for my sin. Are you converted? Has this, has this miracle happened in you so that you are a believing, repenting person? It's easy to know whether you're in a church building, and it's easy to know whether you're in America on Independence Day. These things are measurable and knowable. And so it is with conversion. We've checked the map. My prayer is that God would give grace among us, that our eyes might be opened to see our desperate need for salvation that only comes from the Lord. And you say, well, what, what do I do with all of this if I haven't already? Turn from sin, friend, and turn to Christ. And cry mightily to God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this reminder of your deep, deep mercy. We thank you for this reminder today that there is no such thing as a sinner that is outside the reach of your salvation, nor is there such a person who really wants to repent and believe but just can't. Lord, I thank you so much for your tenderness toward your own. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that miraculous work among us. Lord, I pray that you would use us in all of our weaknesses, Lord, to magnify you in our community. Lord, that we would just simply be those who speak your word and trust in the power of your word, in the hands of you, Holy Spirit, that you might bring about this conversion among us in this place. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.